Today, we're going to be launching a brand new sermon series called A Good Design, Sex, Love, and Marriage, God's Way. And so what we're going to be doing for the next six weeks is we're going to be opening up God's Word, right, these these ancient scriptures that we believe are actually inspired by God and the authority for all of life and practice for the follower of Jesus. Now, here's what I know. I've been following Jesus long enough and reading the Bible long enough to know that there are parts of the Bible that are easy to digest, right? There are parts of the Bible that everybody loves, things like, hey, love your neighbor and forgive others, and you can now eat bacon, praise Jesus. Like there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of really good things and easy things in the scriptures that we can digest, we can all agree on. I also know that there are parts of the Bible that strike more deeply and that are more difficult to accept. Things like deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And I think spiritual maturity is really learning to come to the hard places in Scripture and say, Jesus, you are good, and I, and I trust you. And so I, I submit all of me to all of you, the, the easy stuff to understand and follow and the impossibly difficult stuff to follow and everything in between. Jesus, I just, I submit to all of it. And so that is precisely what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, right? We're just going to open up the word and we're simply going to ask, God, what do you have to say about relationships and love and sex? Now, the incredible thing for me is uh, how relevant the Bible is to modern day culture and how it still consistently answers the deepest questions that people are asking today. Now for you folks who are here and you're single, I want you to know there's gonna be an entire sermon in this series devoted to singleness because I think the church has done historically a really poor job of addressing this category of of people and so, so often I feel like single people kind of feel left out are marginalized when the church starts to talk about marriage or family or relationships or sex or things like that, and I don't think that that's right. And so there's gonna be something for everybody uh, in this series, regardless of, of where you're at, what stage of life uh, you're in. Uh, now, as I mentioned last week, this is just kind of a warning uh, for parents. I don't see a whole lot of uh, young kids in here, so you guys got the message last week. Um, but this series is, is PG, and uh, there are times where we'll be stepping into some, some PG-13 uh, waters, probably not so much today, but in some other weeks. And, and so just, just want to let you know, uh, parents, if you've got a kid in the room who's uh, younger and you're not ready to have an awkward conversation on the way home, uh, now would be a great time to exit. We've got a great preschool ministry to my right, your left, a great kids' church ministry right upstairs. And so now would be your last opportunity to exit with your kids if you need to do that. Now, a couple of just, just caveats before we get started. Number one, I just want to say, man, we, we are going to be scratching the surface, I realize, on a lot of really important issues that deserve a deeper treatment, which means there are going to be some things that you wish that I would have addressed in this series that I won't. There's going to be other things in this series that I just touch on and you wish I, I would have gone deeper, but I, but I can't. And so because of that, I just want to let you know, all six weeks starting today, we're going to have a resource table uh, in the lobby with uh, a bunch of books on these topics where you can go deeper. And so we have, I think, three books that are kind of kind of broad books that cover kind of the Christian sexual ethic. And then we have more specific books that, that address uh, kind of hot button topics. So there's a book out there called Is God Anti-Gay? There's a book on transgenderism. There's a book on singleness. There's a book on pornography. So we've got all kinds of resources out there 
just want to encourage you as you exit, if you'd like to go deeper on some of these issues to uh, stop by the resource table, grab a copy on your way out. Um, the second thing, the second caveat I just want to get before we get going is that it's important for me that you guys understand that I always feel completely inadequate to open God's word and to preach both to God's people and also to people who are far from God. And I realize that we have both in our services and online every single week. I am keenly aware of my own sinfulness and my own shortcomings. And so please just know that as I stand up here, particularly in this series, I stand among you as a fellow sojourner in the mud and the muck of life with you, busted and bloodied up in the journey of finding and following Jesus just like you are. So I just want you to understand, I'm not standing up here casting stones from an ivory tower at all. I also want you to know that I felt the weight of this series for almost two years now. We had this series scheduled for last fall, and then COVID happened, and to be honest with you, I was relieved. Um, it was one of the, the, the only good things that came out of last year. I have lost sleep over this series, um, not, not because I'm timid. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I'm, pretty, uh, I'm typically a very confident, assertive, uh, bold in my preaching style. And I have a lot of issues. Timidity is not one of them. But I, I've lost sleep because I know that these are very real issues that touch very real people, many of whom I, I know and I love. And I know you know and love many of these people as well. And so my promise to you through this series is that, listen, I'm going to do my dead level best to preach undiluted truth but bathed in copious amounts of grace. And if I fail in that in some way, and I'm sure I will at some point, I just, on the front end, I'd want to sincerely ask you for your forgiveness. That's not my intent at all, to hurt somebody or to offend somebody. And my, my hope in this series is actually that through my flawed words and my imperfect attempts to articulate really countercultural truths, that you will be able to hear the still, small voice and the gentle wooing of Jesus to a better vision for sexuality. Not always an easier way, but a better vision that's ultimately meant for your flourishing and your good and his glory. I'm reminded uh, this week as I was studying for this of the famous quote from, from Martin Luther, the great church reformer. And I'll put this quote on the screen for you. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And church, I just believe that we must not flinch at this point. The reality is what we believe in terms of relationships and love and sexuality as followers of Jesus is radically different than what the world is selling us today. And even still, we must not flinch in the face of all of that. There's too much at stake. Now, it may seem, seem odd to you, perhaps even uncomfortable that we're talking about sex in church. Right? You guys, it's, it's very quiet in here. I feel like some of you guys are already puckered up a little bit. You don't even know, you don't even know what I'm gonna say yet. You're already, you're already uh, on edge. And I think the reason for that is because many of us grew up in church cultures 
where the only message about sex was, don't do it. Don't ever do it. That was the message about sex. And so we have this sort of weird impression that sex is dirty. Perhaps it's a necessary evil. Um, but certainly we don't, we don't talk about it, and we definitely don't talk about it in church, which is kind of strange when you consider the fact that sex was designed by who? By God, right? It's not, it's not as if God created man and woman, and he was in heaven one day, and he kind of peeked down one day, and he go, goes, oh, gosh, what, what are they? Jesus, get over here. Spirit, get up. What are they doing? They figured it out. Now we got to make some rules, man. This is, this is kind of crazy. Uh, no, that's not how it went down. Um, at all. In fact, God invented sex. God is for sex. God is pro-sex. He is not anti-sex. But like all things, what we do as fallen sinful human beings is we can take what is good and we can distort it and we can change it and mutilate it and mangle it and turn what God had designed for, for, for good and all of a sudden you look and we've created some distortion of that event or that particular thing that causes more pain and loss and trauma and guilt and shame than good. And listen, it's not just sex that we do this with, right? We do this with food. We do it with drink. We do it with finances. We do it with our hobby. We do it with every area of life. Sex is just one of those things that we tend to distort that God created good. Now, for us to understand kind of the, the Christian sexual ethic, I think we've got to go back to the very beginning in the garden. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it on or open it up and head for Genesis chapter 1. It's the very first chapter in the very first book of the entire Bible. And my, my hope today is simply to kind of lay a foundation. We'll get into more of the, the nuts and bolts of relationship and love and, and sex in the next five weeks. Genesis 1 beginning in verse one, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, pause there. Now, I, I am convinced, absolutely, that for us to understand who we are, where we're going as human beings, we have to understand our origin story. We've, we've got to understand that. The biblical account is that God created everything ex nihilo, right? Latin for out of, out of nothing. That's part of the Christian doctrine is that God is the grand creator of all that is. In other words, this is, this is his design. This is his idea. The air that you're breathing in your lungs right now is his air, the ground that you walk on every single day. When you wake up, it's not your ground. You didn't invent it. You didn't make it. It's his ground. The blood that's pumping through your veins, keeping you alive right now is his blood. And so you kind of get the point. We could go on and on and on. Everything that we experience in this life and in this world is his. It is his design. It is his purpose, it is his world. And so he continues on in verse 26 of chapter one, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now what, what's going on there with the, our language? Does God have borderline personality disorder? Like what, what, what's, what's going on there? This is the first picture we get of the triune God, right? We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all active at the moment of creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man, underline this, in 
His own image. We'll come back to that over and over again. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis 2, a, a parallel creation account that goes into more detail, starting in verse 7, also on the screen for you, says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living, living creature. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. All the dudes in here, that should just like humble us immensely, right? God goes to the creator order. He's like, good, good, good. He looks at us alone. He's like, not good. That's not going to work. It's just not going to work. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, some people get a a little bit offended with that word helper, but they, they really shouldn't, right? That word helper in the Hebrew is actually a Hebrew word that God uses to describe himself many times in the Old Testament. I will make him a helper, a woman partner, fit for him, suitable for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man, the best day of Adam's life. Then the man said, this is at last. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, Adam was like, holy smokes. Thank you, God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's biblical language for sexual intimacy. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see right out of the gate that not only did God create the universe, he created humanity with a very specific intent, purpose, and design. Now, realistically, there, there's so much just in Genesis 1 and 2. We could park and, and just unpack this for two or three months. But let me just draw your attention to a couple of things before we move on. One, God, God intentionally created humans in his image, right? Imago Dei. It's a doctrine that we talk a lot about here. It's really important. Imago Dei. We're made in the very image of God. Human beings are the only thing, in fact, in all of creation that are created in his very image. We are not animals, We are image bearers of the God of this universe, which is why, by the way, human rights movements, almost without exception, are birthed out of the Christian worldview. You can look back through history and from the slave abolitionists to women's rights movements to the civil rights movement in our very own nation just a few decades ago to the battle against genocide in Nazi Germany to the battle against genocides. Today, all of these movements were birthed out of cultures and nations that have been heavily influenced by the Christian worldview that is built and founded on the truth that we just read in Genesis 1 and 2, that all human beings have intrinsic value and worth because we are not animals, we are image bearers of the God of this universe. And as such, we are all worthy of dignity, love, and care. And that ideology, you just need to know, is rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, to be sure, there are other worldviews like secular humanism, atheistic thinkers, particularly the new atheist, 
uh, New Age movement, all of those things, they have certain, they've, they've perhaps co-opted, they've borrowed from this view, but you need to understand that all of these movements are rooted distinctly in the Judeo-Christian worldview without question. Secondly, God created his image bearers in the form of very clearly two sexes, male and female, which means, by the way, that gender is not a social construct and it's not a spectrum. It is an essential, indispensable part of God's good design for human flourishing, which means for Cheryl, my wife and I, God has tasked us with two daughters and one son, and we are unapologetically raising our daughters to be fierce women in God's kingdom. And we are raising our son unapologetically to be a ferociously bold man after God's own heart. And I can just, I can tell you, they, they came out of the womb wired very differently, and it had nothing to do with social conditioning. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Our two girls came out as these kind, little, nurturing, lovely creatures. And then our son Judah was born. We thought something was wrong. We tried to return him to the hospital. This one is defective. They said, no, that's, that's normal. Right, he came out of the womb looking for ways to decapitate their baby dolls. We didn't teach him that. I promise you, he never observed, he's not copying my behavior. Point is, God created two different genders to reflect his character perfectly. Now, if you read the Bible, God reveals himself through both masculine and feminine characteristics, Right? He portrays himself as both strong and courageous, and yet at the very same time, loving and gentle. And so the reality is it's only when both genders are united as one that we get a full picture of the nature and the character of God, right? Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive into the issue of transgenderism or gender fluidity and kind of all these words that are out there in our culture now. I'd point you to a book in our lobby that, that addresses that specifically. But let me just say, that I do believe that gender dysphoria is a, is a real thing. And, and let me also say that I think the response of the church should be one of empathy and grace and love. I, I just want to say, in fact, if you're here and you're someone who's in that camp, you, know, you struggle with gender dysphoria, feeling like you're the wrong gender, you're trapped in the wrong body, or maybe you're someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and perhaps you've been hurt or mistreated or marginalized or abused in the church. If that is your story, I just want to say, I am so sorry that that's your experience. I believe that the church ought to be the safest place on the planet for hurting people, wounded people, and marginalized people. Now, now understand this, here at New Life, we are always, always, because we think it's the most loving thing to do, we're always gonna point you back to God's design here, but we want this place to be a safe place for sinners of every stripe and flavor because at the end of the day, that's all of us, isn't it? Are we all sinners? Aren't we all broken, only redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus himself? So here's the first truth that I think we would draw from Genesis 1 and 2. This will be on the screens for you. Truth number one we can't define something we didn't create. We cannot, we should not try to define something that we didn't create. This is God's creation. This is his design. Like, 
How insane would it be if you were at work one day and I just, I came to your house and I just kicked down your door while you were at work and I came in, I started ripping off all the pictures of your wall. Man, these are ugly and I got all your furniture and kind of chunked them out and repainted everything and threw up some other thing. Like, man, this looks better here. Let me rearrange this. and I'm gonna take this room. The fridge doesn't look very good there. I'm gonna put it over here and the stove over here and the couch over here. You would come home and your reaction would probably be, what are you doing? What are you doing? Who do you think you are? This is my house. You have no right to redefine and rearrange what I've created, and you would be right. And I would just simply argue this world is God's house. This is his creation. This is his design, not yours, not mine. Now, Jesus, what he does is he takes, in the New Testament, he takes Genesis 1 and 2, and he expands on that passage in Matthew 19. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and go to Matthew 19. Both these passages, Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew 19, will be kind of anchor text that we come back to and revisit again and again throughout this series. Matthew 19, if you're familiar with that particular story, the Pharisees, these religious leaders are coming to Jesus. They're trying to set a trap for him. And here's the question that they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, that was a very common teaching in that day. In fact, some of the rabbis taught that if your wife burns your meal, you can divorce her. In that culture, men had all the authority and all the power, and women were seen as nothing more than property. So the question is, is Jesus, is that okay? Our rabbis are teaching us that this is okay, and, and so what, what do you have to say about it? And again, they're trying to trap him, and Jesus responds to a question about divorce in such a deep way that he actually addresses gender and sexuality in marriage in one response, almost as if he's divine. Matthew 19, verse four, here we go. Remember the question, Jesus, can we divorce our wives for any reason? Jesus answered, have you not read? Which, by the way, uh, he's talking to Pharisees here, which might be the biggest insult possible for them, right? They understand for Pharisees, this is what they did for a living. They memorized, some of them, the entire Old Testament, certainly the Torah and some of the prophets. And Jesus goes, hey boys, have y'all not read the Bible? How about Genesis 1-1, you ever read that? So this is massively insulting. Hey, boys, you ever read the Bible? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Again, quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus reaffirms that human beings are created either male or female, seeing gender not as a social construct or an array of choices from which we are to choose, but the two sexes are actually, Jesus sees, as the foundation for intimacy, sex, and marriage. And he continues on in this process. He's, in verse five, he says, and, it said, and he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Again, language for sexual intimacy. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, he's going, guys, listen, I, 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 I love you guys, but you, you need to understand, like, this is so important. You don't, you don't get to mess with this. This is, this is bigger than you. Like, there's a, there's a grand design and a purpose behind this. Like, marriage is actually designed to image God to the world around you. And that can only happen as one person from each gender comes together to fully reflect all the attributes and character of God. And Jesus is talking about sex here when he talks about uh, one flesh relationships. And here's what he says. He says, hey guys, here's, here's the framework for sex in God's design. 
I don't, I don't care what, what culture says. I don't care what your friends at school say. I don't care what the social media influencers are saying. In my kingdom, here is the framework for sex in my kingdom. Here, here's what he says is, one man, one woman, for life, in marriage, that's it. That's the standard. That is the sexual ethic of Jesus, which means that anything that falls outside of the bounds of that framework is ultimately what the Bible calls sin. That just means missing God's mark for your life, that it will ultimately harm you in life, will distort God's image to the world. That means sex before marriage. That means homosexual sex. That means heterosexual sex outside of marriage. That means, by by the way, porn use which has skyrocketed in our culture. In fact, I, I just read, we'll, we'll get into this more in other weeks, but I just read that most people in our culture today are exposed to their first pornographic video in fifth grade, elementary school. That's out of bounds as well. Cohabitation before marriage, out of bounds. Heterosexual affairs within marriage, out of bounds. And the list could go on and on. Listen, this is not, I want you to hear me say this, this is not a heterosexual sermon series railing against homosexuality. If you came here for that, you're gonna be disappointed. This is a series about holy sexuality that, listen to me, calls for all of us to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow Jesus as our Savior. Now, I want you to hear how, how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6. This is be on the screens for you. Paul writes this, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say dabble with it, play with it, toy with it. He says, run away from it. Run away from sexual immorality. And that, that Greek word that's translated sexual immorality is actually the Greek word porneia. If that sounds a little bit familiar to you, it should. That's where we get uh, our, our word porn or, or pornography. In Greek, it's used as a, a general sexual term. It's kind of, a, kind of a catch-all phrase for any sexual sin outside of the bounds of a marriage between a man and a woman. So it says, flee from all of those types of sexual immorality. Everything that falls outside the bounds of a man and a woman for life, run from it. He continues on, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's talking about the importance, the uh, significance of this type of sin. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. He said, hey, listen, believer, you don't belong to yourself anymore. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, you don't get to call your own shots anymore. You're following Jesus. You are not your own, for you are bought with a high price. So glorify God in your body. And then in verse 9, same chapter, it continues on. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that again, porno or porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, by the way, all heterosexual sins, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Or the greedy? You ever desired something that wasn't yours that somebody else had? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But 
You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now notice in this list, it's not just homosexuality. It certainly is mentioned here, but it is not just homosexuality that's mentioned. It's also porneia. It's heterosexual sin. It's adultery, it's drunkards, it's greed, it's thieves, it's liars. That's pretty much, I think he covered all the bases, right? That's, that's all of us in the room. And he says, listen, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Now listen, you may still struggle with some of these things, but listen, he's saying, believer, this is not your identity anymore. This is not who you are. And for the follower of Jesus, he's saying, man, our, our, our response is to, is to turn from, is to repent of these things. Why? He says, because you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified by the blood of Jesus. You are free believer. You're no longer a slave to your passions anymore. You've been set free from that stuff. And so here's the second truth this morning also on the screens for you. Listen, we are all sexually broken sinners. All of us. Listen to me. This message series is, I want you to hear this clearly. This message series is not just for your gay neighbor. It's not just for your trans coworker or classmate. It's not just for your nephew who's living with his girlfriend before marriage. This is for all of us, no exceptions. Why? Because we are all called to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses and to follow Jesus. Now listen, for some of us, that means choosing not to act on same-sex attraction. For others of us, that means denying sexual temptation before marriage. For others of us, that means denying the pool of pornography in our lives. For others of us, that means denying the desire to have sex with someone who's not our spouse. This is a call for self-denial for heterosexual people, for same-sex attracted people, and for every other category of sexual sinners. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying is, listen, there is freedom and there's flourishing in God's good design for your life. Now, after Jesus drops this bomb on his disciples, their response is perhaps the response that some of you are having right now in this moment. Their response, we don't have time to read it, but their response in essence is, Jesus, this is hard. That's what they say. Jesus, this is, this is really hard. If sex is, is confined to, to one man and, and one woman for life in marriage, they actually say, maybe it's better, Jesus, not to even ever get married. <laughs> That's, it. That, that's their takeaway. This is so hard, maybe we just ought to like step away from this whole thing. Now I want you to hear Jesus' response to his disciples when they say, this is, this is so hard, Jesus. Maybe it's just better that we don't even do this if, it's, if, this, if this is the bounds. This is a response starting in verse 11 of Matthew 19. He sa- it says, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So Jesus is like, yeah, I, it is hard. And there are a lot of people that aren't going to be able to accept this. In fact, the only people that are going to be able to accept this are are the people whom I've given the ability to to accept it by by the power of my Holy Spirit that indwell them. And he continues on in verse 12. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made uh, themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, we can't do a deep dive, but eunuchs in that day basically were people who were celibate. They were people who chose not to have sex. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, the, the only alternative 
to, to, to my sexual ethic for the believer, sex between a man and a woman in a marriage context, the only alternative to that in my kingdom is celibacy. He's saying, listen, guys, I, I, know, I know this call is hard. I know, I know a lot of people are going to laugh at it and call it outdated and say this is impossible and I can't do it. I, I, there's a lot of people that can't accept it. I, I know it's tough. So if you're here in the room, if you're watching this online and you think, man, this teaching from Jesus is ridiculously hard, I want you to know you're not alone. His disciples had the same reaction initially. But what they came to learn, and I think what we will come to learn, if we will hear the gentle voice of our Savior wooing us and calling us to a better vision for sexuality, I think what we discover is what the disciples discover is that, listen, his design is not meant to confine us, it's meant to free us. I want you to hear me say this with love in my voice, but you will never flourish relationally or sexually unless you align your life with God's heart for you. And God's heart for you is tied up in his design for humanity. So I want you to hear me, church family, this morning, really, really clearly. We, we are all broken. We are all sexual sinners in one form or another. Jesus made this abundantly clear in his most famous sermon, on the, the Sermon on the Mount, right, where he says, listen, even if you lust after someone in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. He's saying, listen, guys, this, this is a heart matter. This is a heart matter. It doesn't matter if you've ever had premarital sex. It doesn't matter if you've ever had an affair. It doesn't matter if you've done all these things. This is, this is ultimately a heart matter, and we're broken in this category, and we need somebody to step in and fix us and save us and redeem us. Which leads us to number three, our last truth this morning, also on the screens for you. Jesus is the only antidote to our sexual and relational brokenness. Jesus is the only antidote to our sexual and relational brokenness. There's this incredible story in John's Gospel, chapter four, a, a really a beautiful story where Jesus encounters a woman at the well. If you've been in church, you've probably heard the story. There's a Samaritan woman at the well, and Jews and Samaritans didn't even talk, right? They hated each other. And this particular Samaritan woman uh, was a woman who was, at the very least, caught up in a very uh, sexually promiscuous lifestyle. At worst, she could have been a prostitute. We don't know. But it certainly would have been scandalous for Jesus to even have a conversation with this woman, yet he engages her, and he asks her for some, some water from the well. He says, please, can I have some, some water from the well? She's shocked that this Jewish man is even talking to her. And Jesus responds, and he says, hey, hey, listen, sister, if, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. I would give it to you, and you would never thirst again. And her response is, Give me some of that water. I want some of that water. I'm tired of coming here and, and drawing in, this, in the heat of the day and the, the shame and all the other women who mock me because of who I am. Like, if you can give me some water, well, I'll never have to do this again. Like, I would love that. Please give me some of this water. And Jesus begins to do heart surgery on this woman, not because he hates her, but because he loves her. And he says, okay, uh, why, why don't you bring your husband first and then I'll give you some of this water. And she says, I have no husband. You remember the story, Jesus responds and he says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the dude that you're living with now is not your husband. Isn't that right? And she's stunned. And I love her response. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
I perceive that you're a prophet. And Jesus responds to her and he goes, hey, listen, sister, I'm, I'm actually the Messiah that you've been looking for. I am the living water that you've been searching for. I can, I can satisfy you in ways. All these relationships that you're chasing and all these sexual experiences that you're chasing never can. My design for you, sweet sister, is so much better than all this junk that you think is going to satisfy you, but it's going to destroy you. You see, Jesus presents himself as the only solution to our sexual and relational brokenness. And so as we close, let me, let me just say, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that some of you, whether you're here in the room, whether you're watching online right now, I'm guessing some of you are like that Samaritan woman at the well that day. You have never tasted this living water that Jesus talked about. Man, you have, you have tried life your way. Man, you've tried relationships your way. Maybe even you've tried sex your way, and you have seen and tasted the emptiness and the shallowness of it all. And praise God, Jesus is still calling people to taste this living water 2,000 years later. And so I just want to say, if, if that's you, if I'm talking to you right now and you have never submitted your life fully to Jesus, you've never said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, listen, I'm giving you all of me. I'm so tired of giving you 90% of my life. I'm so tired of giving you 95% of my life and just trying to control all this stuff over here. So Jesus, I just want to give all of me to all of you today. You are so worth denying myself, picking up my cross and following you in everything in my life, in my relationships, in my sex life, in every single arena of my life. If you've never done that, I just wanna invite you to do that today. And your life will never, I promise you, ever, ever be the same, just like it wasn't for the Samaritan woman at the well. I would invite you, man, maybe, I don't know, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you're religious, maybe you know a lot of the answers. But you have never had your life wrecked by Jesus Christ. I want you to know religion's not enough. I want you to know knowledge about Jesus is never gonna be enough. I want you to know that you need a dynamic, life-changing experience and relationship with the creator of this universe through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died a brutal death and rose again three days later to give you life now and in eternity. And so if you've never done that, I just wanna encourage you to pray even right now to cry out to God and say, I give you my life. And I don't know what that means, and I don't know yet what I'm going to have to give up, but I don't really care at this point. I just know I need you. I've tried my own way. I've failed my own, time, my own way a million different times, and so I'm going to give it to you. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I don't care. So if you've never done that, let me just encourage you to pray that prayer. The words aren't important. Just pray it from your heart. Jesus hears you. And let me just say, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, and perhaps you are one of the many, I believe, who have bought the life from our culture, that fulfillment and satisfaction can be found outside of God's design for us relationally or sexually. I just wanna encourage you from a place of pastoral love to, to turn from that today, to repent from the folly of those ways, to, to run to the cross of Jesus, to rest at the cross of Jesus, to find freedom and hope and redemption and God's design for your life and for your relationships, for your good and for his glory. We're gonna pray now and then we're gonna sing, we're gonna worship this great designer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and 
we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the parts that are easy to accept, God. We're also grateful for the parts of your word that cut deep, that challenge our assumptions and challenge our belief system and certainly fly in the face of everything that our culture is screaming at us right now. Thank you for being the good designer. Thank you for designing things in a way that would help us, that would allow us to flourish sexually and relationally in our lives. Help us to see the goodness behind the design, not as something to hold us down, but something to set us free. God, would you remind us that we can't define something we didn't create. That's not our place. Would you forgive us for the times where we have tried to redefine something that we didn't create? Father, would you help us realize that we're all broken sexually. We are all sinners. We are all called to deny ourselves in some way or another, to pick up our cross, to follow you. That is what it means to be your disciple. And so help us to have the courage to do that today. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the antidote, the cure, the one that heals, the one that can set us free from our sexual brokenness and our relational brokenness, God, and give us a better way and a better vision. And it's in his beautiful, his powerful name that we ask and we pray all of these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship.